Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. How are you? Doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have something unique for you. We're going to do a review of the most cited articles of 2018 from the Journal in Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. We're doing 2018 instead of 2019 because there hasn't been quite enough time to get those articles from 2019 cited, and I thought this would give us a the most up-to-date review we can get of the most highest impact uh, literature published in, in our own journal. I've invited three guests, each of whom is going to talk about a different article. So first we have Greg Satanovich, a sports shoulder and elbow surgeon from The Ohio State University in Columbus, who's going to discuss quantifying success after total shoulder arthroplasty by the Exact Tech Group. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Satanovich. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Rachel, for the invitation, and uh, thank you to the uh, other members on the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing the article by Simovich et al., uh, Quantifying Success After Total Shoulder Arthroplasty, the Minimal Clinically Important Difference. Shoulder arthroplasty is a very effective treatment for glenohumeral arthritis, and the majority of the patients have uh, pain relief and functional improvement. MCID is a concept that's increasingly used in orthopedic uh, surgery research to account for uh, clinically important changes to the patient as well as uh, just significantly, statistically significant findings. The idea of this is to define a level of improvement below which would not be clinically meaningful to the patient, even if it did reach statistical significance. With this background, the purpose of this article was to quantify MCID for a variety of shoulder patient-reported outcome measures in patients undergoing shoulder arthroplasty and to, to determine how these values differ for anatomic versus reverse replacement, as well as age, gender, and uh, length of follow-up. The articles conducted, or the authors conducted a retrospective analysis of primary shoulder anatomic or reverse replacements between 2001 and 2015 by 13 surgeons. They excluded fractures, they excluded revisions, and they focused on patients with minimum two-year follow-up, leaving over 900 patients in both anatomic and reverse groups. Patients were evaluated pre- and post-operatively with a variety of scores seen in the manuscript, and the authors then used a methodology to calculate the MCID using an anchor-based question, uh, similar to Tashin et al.'s article in uh, 2017 in JSES, where they basically asked patients to rate their shoulder at latest follow-up as whether it was worse, unchanged, better, or much better compared to prior to their shoulder arthroplasty. Much better was considered to be the threshold for minimum important uh, for the MCID, and so they compared this to the uh, patients who were worse or unchanged. They excluded the patients who were uh, much better, and they compared the patients who were better to those who were worse or unchanged. So the much better patients were considered to have more than a minimal uh, improvement. They used unpaired t-tests from there. As a result, overall, they found that 90% of patients were much better or better, and only 9% uh, were unchanged or worse. 
when they calculate their MCIDs, they have values for a whole array of shoulder scores here. Uh, for the ASCS score, for instance, it was 13.6, uh, UCLA score 8.7, constant score 5.7, and so on. For forward elevation, the, the MCID value was 12, and external rotation was 3. They took their MCID values and found that about 90% of their patients during this study period achieved the MCID for most of the patient-reported outcomes, and about 80% for the active range of motion thresholds. They did a variety of calculations to look at anatomic versus reverse, age, gender, and length of follow-up uh, to see if MCID scores and thresholds varied based on these factors. It did seem that there were somewhat lower MCIDs for reverse as compared to anatomic, as well as lower values for older patients and female patients. Finally, they uh, looked at radiographs. And while they didn't specifically relate this to the MCID, they did find that patients with radiolucent lines, as well as notching, were more commonly in the worse and unchanged groups compared to the patients who did have improvement. Similarly, with, with complications, patients who had complications were also more likely to be worse or unchanged. So the article uh, makes a nice contribution to the growing literature about how we define success after shoulder arthroplasty. It defines thresholds for MCID for a variety of commonly used shoulder outcome metrics as well as range of motion. At the same time, it raises some questions about how to calculate these uh, numbers and how to interpret these numbers. In the literature, there's a variety of ways to calculate MCID. In this case, they used a global anchor question about whether the shoulder was better or not with different uh, thresholds. The results can differ dramatically based on the question. So if they ask whether the patient had a difference in pain, whether the patient had a difference in function, uh, these could all lead to different uh, values. Similarly, perhaps the MCID could vary based on the procedure, anatomic versus reverse, for instance. Uh, in this article, it does not seem that they did a regression analysis or area under the curve analysis. So it's somewhat difficult to know the significance of their findings for these uh, demographic factors, but there's likely to be some differences in what would be clinically significant based on these uh, these uh, patient differences and surgical differences. Finally, as they mentioned, long-term follow-up is going to be important here, and we'll get to that with a, a subsequent article here in the podcast. Thanks, Greg. You know, that's a really good synopsis of the study, and I hope that our listeners can appreciate the summary that you gave, as I'm sure they will. Why do you think, what's the number one thing for you, why do you think this study is so important and has been cited so frequently um, amongst other authors as they write their papers on shoulder arthroplasty? I think a couple reasons. They have a large cohort with good follow-up, and they're uh, looking at this MCID concept, which is really critical to how we define success after shoulder replacement. So it's not just an implant that uh, doesn't need to be revised or doesn't have a significant complication. It's also an implant that the patient's happy with and the patient has clinical improvement from. And uh, with, with uh, patient, uh, patient reimbursement or with surgical reimbursement, uh, patient outcomes being increasingly tied to these kind of factors, I think it's very important to show that we have a, a surgery in a shoulder arthroplasty where over 90% of patients did have clinical significant improvement, uh, and that's that's really important here. 
One of the factors that I think is so interesting about this study is that it demonstrates such a sea change in the way that we define success. You know, his, historically, we talked about, you know, 90% of patients were good or excellent results, and we had various ways of defining that, or this many of patients continue to have the implant not be revised. But I agree with you, Greg, that this is such a, this article to me demonstrates such a sea change in our definition of success. Now, what, one of the questions I have for you, Greg, is how does this change how you counsel your patients preoperatively? So if someone's female, do you tell them that they're less likely to achieve success? If someone's going to have a reverse, do you tell them they're more or less likely to achieve success? Tell us how to interpret those MCID numbers with respect to the patient saying, how likely am I going to be happy with this? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, set of points there, Pete. And the uh, question of how you counsel the patients is uh, overall, I think you can you can tell patients that uh, over 90% of the time you're going to have clinically uh, significant improvement from this surgery. And I think this is a, a useful uh, point to add to the patients as well as information about longevity, perhaps. Uh, in terms of how you interpret the reverse, uh, MCID values being somewhat lower, the female values being uh, somewhat lower, that's a little less clear to me, and I, and I think that uh, some of these factors are interrelated. When you look at their demographics, the patients undergoing reverses are more likely to be female, somewhat older, uh, may have somewhat different kind of patient expectations, different uh, activity levels that they're trying to achieve, as well as they have a significantly different pathology with the anatomic being used for glenohumeral or rheumatoid arthritis and the reverse being used for rotator cuff arthropathy or for arthritis with a rotator cuff tear here. So I think that you have to be to be cautious in pointing those out specifically to uh, patients, but I think it highlights an interesting uh, fact that those MCID values could vary based on the uh, patient demographics or the procedure being performed. All right. Thanks, Greg. That was just an awesome summary and hopefully gives us some take-home points about things we can tell our patients. So the next up, we have um, Eric Mockney from Henry Ford in Detroit, who's going to discuss epidemiology of ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction in major and minor league baseball pitchers by Chris Camp and colleagues. Eric, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Absolutely. Thanks, Peter and Rachel, for having me on. Um, so, you know, UCL injury in baseball players is continuing to be a hot topic, and it's probably the most infamous injury in sports medicine right now. Um, we've seen all the studies uh, that, showed the, that showed the injury rates on the rise. You know, there was a, a whole string of epidemiological studies that came out, you know, four or five years ago, um, looking at return to play and outcomes after Tommy John. And there were a lot of database studies with public records that showed outcomes are pretty good after Tommy John surgery in major league pitchers. But when you started to dig deeper, you found that it wasn't as rosy of a picture. And the thought process that all pitchers get back to their old level, their prior level play at a high level has started to get debunked. Um, and I think it's in this setting that Camp and colleagues looked at the uh, major league baseball hits database and took a look at all of the pitchers undergoing Tommy John reconstruction, um, basically from 1974 on to 2016, to really look at that return to play and how reliable are pitchers after you know coming back from the surgery. In total, it was a very high number of professional pitchers, about 1,400 or so professional pitchers. And I'm just going to summarize some of the key points and you know what I take away from from this and how I apply it to, to my practice now. 
So I think the, the, the key results were that of this cohort, about 83 or 84% were able to return to play at any level. And I think that return to play, and this has come up in a lot of these studies, return to play is a little bit of a misleading uh, uh, stat because if you return to play, but if not at the level you were before surgery or before injury, was it really return to play? So what the authors found that it was an 83% return to play at any level, and it was about 14 and a half months to get there. And to get to the prior level of play, it was only 73%. And that took a 17 month return. Now, obviously in professional baseball, there's off season and so forth, but when you take the big picture, it's about a year and a half to get back to the level you were before that. Um, and that's a, that's a big deal. And the, the authors also found that the likelihood of getting back to that prior level of play was 80% in major league pitchers versus 70% in minor league pitchers. Um, they found that, that major league pitchers almost all got back to some level of play at about 95%, uh, but minor leaders only got back to some level of play at 80%. So when you take a step back, right, in our best pitchers with our best conditioning teams and best rehab experts and best resources, only 73% get back to that prior level of play and it takes about a year and a half to get there. So extrapolate that to most of our practices, right? Most of us, uh, taking care of baseball players. Yes, there are the occasional professional athletes, but most are these high school, adolescent, youth baseball players, which is where the big problem is right now. All of these new uh, innovations in weighted ball throwing and, and the kids playing in multiple leagues, this is leading to that kind of rash of injuries that we're seeing. So the way I, the way I take away these results is that when I'm uh, talking to baseball players, especially youth players or adolescent players, I can quote these results and say, look, the best players in the world get back to their prior level at 73%. So before we talk about surgery, before we jump into surgery, we should really take a look at what that entails. Um, and I think the timeline is important too. And when you're looking at a year and a half to get back to that prior level of play, that changes things. In the early database studies, it was about 12 months to get back to level of play and maybe 16 months to get that prior level. And this study confirms about a year and a half. So now we're in a quandary, right? The, the player goes through the season, and as they get ready for their, you know, the following season, as they get ramping up, and those over injury, overuse injuries start to kind of creep their head in, you have a tough decision. And so what I'm now doing is asking these kids, what's more important? Is it your, your fall ball, your spring ball, which is usually the school, or your summer ball, summer ball? And we have to figure out how to do these treatments with respect to that season. So if a kid is really, really um, focused on his playing his high school, right, then you have to say, well, you have to time any sort of treatment if it requires surgery well before that high school season and vice versa for the summertime. So I think that now when I think about my treatment algorithms for these kids, um, it really comes down to, to not only when they want to play their main season, but also looking at the tear characteristics and some of our emerging treatments. So some of the new research by Schick and Dance and others looking at the location of the tear is telling us that not all UCL tears are the same, right? So a low-grade partial tear from the proximal aspect, we're going to really, really, really focus on that uh, non-operative rehab. But once we start getting those distal tears with that poor prognosis, now I'm, you know, it makes me wonder, should we be acting even a little bit sooner? Because if you exhaust non-operative treatment, right before their season starts and they end up needing surgery, you've not only lost that year, but you've lost the following season as well, given that one and a half year time frame. 
And finally, and, and Pete, you and I have talked about this at length, uh, how to treat these injuries, right? The gold standard is UCL reconstruction once you fail um, after treatment, but this emergence of, of UCL repair with internal brace with reports of 92% return to play with the proper patient selection. You know, we've talked about this that, you know, if the tissue is good enough and if it's a distal tear, maybe you're better off trying to repair that, get a shorter return to play and have a higher return uh, to play uh, rather than going with that reconstruction uh, from the get-go. So those are my takeaways, but I'd be interested to see what, what you think about that. Eric, that's a great, great summary. Tell us, tell us most specifically, what is the number one thing about for you about the study that's important? And why do you think that's going to change things for our research or our patient care going forward? I think the, the thing that's screaming is a 73% prior return to prior level of play at an average of 17 months. And if you look at the first figure, I think it's their first figure on the, uh, the rise in UCL injuries. Um, and, and the rise is in the major league baseball players, there's a, there's a little bit of a modest uptick, but most of that rise is being fueled to the minor league players, right? And so either there's a selection, right, that's protecting those that have make it to the majors, or that overuse injury is, you know, as we suspect, much more prevalent in the younger athletes. And the ones that underwent UCL reconstruction in the study in the minor league uh, were about four years younger than the major leaguers. So that screams out to me because there's a lot of misconception about UCL reconstruction. And, and if you go to talks by Jimmy Andrews, he'll show pictures of kids that have just been indicated for surgery at the age of 14, 15, 16, who are smiling ear to ear, posing for pictures with him and their family, because everyone's so excited that they get to have surgery with Jimmy Andrews, right? Like there's a, there's a lot of, uh, of clamor about this surgery. There's a lot of hype about the surgery, but it, if you're looking at 73% return to play at the level you want to for major leaguers, right? For professional pitchers, that's not a good outcome for kids to, for kids these days, right? And that's under ideal circumstances. So I drive these points home to the kids and the families, and, and I try to tackle the sense that they're not going to get better because they have a Tommy John surgery necessarily, uh, and that this is something kind of a, um, a hallmark of a much more sinister problem with our overuse epidemic. Eric, thanks so much. Definitely gives us some things to think about, particularly for our youth athletes. I think we'll move on now to our third and final guest on this podcast. So next we have Moet, who's going to discuss the article, Longitudinal Observational Study of Reverse Total Shoulder Arthroplasty for Irreparable Rotator Cuff Dysfunction, Results After 15 Years, by Christian Gerber and his group. Hey, thank you, Rachel and Peter and the ACS for having me. Uh, this was a awesome. pretty Thanks important so study. Uh, this was a pretty important study looking at uh, long-term results for reverse shoulder at 15 years. And the key question for this study was to see how uh, functional improvement uh, persisted after 10 years, because there had been some earlier work done from France showing that uh, there was a drop-off of functional outcomes at about 8 to 10 years. So this study really wanted to see did those functional improvements persist after 10 years. So it was a retrospective review of a Gramont-style reverse prosthesis with a minimum of 15-year follow-up. And these procedures were performed between 1997 and 2001 from Professor Gerber and his group in Switzerland. The indication for these 
reverse shoulder arthroplasties were massive cuff tears in patients who had less than 90 degrees of forward elevation. And now they weren't all primaries, but they were all primary arthroplasties. So there was no revision from arthroplasty to another arthroplasty. There were a total of 52 consecutive patients who fit this criteria. However, half of the patients had died at the 15-year follow-up, and four were lost to follow-up, so that left only 22 for analysis. The patients were analyzed at multiple intervals over the 15 years, and the outcomes included radiographic x-rays, constant score, an age and sex matched relative constant score, SSV or subjective shoulder value, and then range of motion as measured by an independent examiner, specifically forward elevation, abduction, and external rotation. Now, this was the Depew Delta III first-generation reverse Gramont, and a majority of the humerus or humeri were cemented. So there's about three uh, main take-home results. The first one was the notching. So the notching was progressive over time. Uh, it was measured using the Cervo classification, and 47% of these 22 patients had grade three or four notching at the final follow-up. However, there was no change in outcome comparing advanced notching to minor notching. But this is where the MCID comes in, as we had mentioned earlier on the podcast. So the numbers were small, and there was a seven-point change in the constant score between patients who had severe notching and no notching, and 13 points on the relative constant score. So it meets the threshold for the MCID from the earlier paper we mentioned, uh, but wasn't statistically significant, so likely underpowered to ask this question. And we know that uh, advanced notching at long-term follow-up does associate with uh, decreased motion and lower constant scores. So uh, there's plenty of literature now that shows that. Now, why is that happening? Well, we don't know for sure. Right now, it's an association and no true causation. Uh, we know that um, the notching is associated with the poor scores and could be pain from polywear or pain from bony wear. One interesting finding in this study was that the notching was associated with patients who had lower preoperative constant scores and lower preoperative motion. And that's difficult to explain, and the, the study admits that. The second major finding was the complication rate. The overall complication rate was 59%, and this was distributed evenly through many different complications, including instability, scapula fracture, loosening on the glenoid and the humeral side, and infection, which was the most common complication. Now, majority of these were treated surgically, not all of them, but if you looked at revision of the actual implant and you considered these the failures, then the rate was 27%. So 59% overall, but 27% when it came to the failures. Now, if you compared the outcomes of those that had component retention complication to no complication at all, Again, it was not statistically significant. The p-value was about 0.09, but there was a 14-point change in constant score. So again, enough to reach the MCID criteria, but not statistically significant. And finally, the most important outcome uh, was, the, was what happened with the function after 15 years. So all outcomes were improved and maintained improvement at 15 years when compared to pre-op. And that included constant score, relative constant score, forward elevation, and even the abduction. However, the abduction did deteriorate over time with a total drop of 30 degrees or so at the 15-year follow-up. 
Now, so now looking at the component retention and survival, if you looked at just the component retention, it was 87% at 10 years and 84% at 15 years. You may say it's not bad. However, when you included operation for any complication, then it dropped to 73% at 10 years and 70% at 15 years. So a little bit tempered there. However, there was no further reoperation after 11 years. And so it seemed like it reached a steady state after a decade. Now, if we compare this to the two studies I mentioned earlier, so the Favard paper out of CORE 2011 France and the Guerri paper 2006 JBJS France. And these two papers were concerning because of the theory of the deltoid tired syndrome. So although the component retention was good in both these papers, 89% at 10 years for the first one and 95% at 10 years for the second one that I mentioned, once you included patients who had a constant score that dropped below 30, and you included those patients as a failure, then it dropped to 72% at 10 years and 58% at 10 years. And so uh, it seemed like almost like a catastrophic type failure in some patients. And this is where the deltoid tire syndrome concept came from. And the promising thing in this paper was that it didn't seem to be as bad. The constant scores were maintained up to 15 years, and the abduction did start to decrease. So there was some element of this, but not as bad in the other papers that I mentioned. So Mohit, um, that's just a, it's a great summary. Um, it gives us, um, I think these, the paper, these paper and the papers you mentioned start to hopefully answer some of the, one of the, the really big questions of lingering in shoulder arthroplasty, which is the long-term reverse of results of reverse. I love that you put this in perspective with the other long-term studies. So um, why do you think reverse do results degrade with time? Why are the results different in this paper from other papers? Is that noise? Is that signal? How, how can we avoid that problem? Because I think everyone's thinking about that right now. Yeah, I do think it's concerning, especially when those first two papers come out. And now there's been a couple now that shows that maybe it's not as bad as our experience continues to grow. So one paper is this one. And then there were two papers that came out last year. One was from Belgium and one was from the Danish registry that, that was pretty similar to this current paper from Switzerland where their 10-year results were pretty good. There was some decrease in constant score, but not as bad as the initial two papers. So what are some of the theories? You know, one is how much of this is a natural aging of the deltoid? You know, as these patients who have their surgeries in their 60s and 70s, 15 years, 20 years later, now you're in your late 80s and 90s, how much of it is a natural aging of the deltoid? I'm not entirely convinced on that one because if it was just natural aging of the muscle, we would see some similar drop-off, you know, in the anatomical shoulder, and, and those change in constant scores are just not there. You know, their theory is how much of it is a non-physiologic change of the deltoid? You know, it's such a non-anatomic operation. The deltoids that stretch for such a long period of time, is the deltoid naturally growing? You know, is it forming sarcomeres in series? And is this just a natural response to stretch? And does that lead to a decrease in constant score? I don't know. And the last one, you know, is it actually getting tired? And is it getting tired and un unable to function the same way? You know, m my feeling is that you know, and some of our uh, colleagues say the same thing, that the initial reverses were being put in much tighter. And maybe as we gain experience and we're able to put these in looser, and especially as we go more to 
lateralized gland sphere and 135. Uh, that increased its stability actually may allow us to go looser. Uh, hopefully, this uh, leads to better long-term functional outcomes. We just don't know that answer right now. Certainly food for thought for the future. I want to thank all of our guests, Greg Satanovich, uh, Eric Mockney, and Mohit Kalatra. Um, we really appreciate you guys' insight. This was a, each of provided phenomenal summaries of each of these papers and gave us really a lot to think about for where the field is going for anatomic reverse and um, also here for uh, sports elbow. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate you taking the time and spending time with us on this podcast. We think the listeners are really going to enjoy your perspective on these high-level papers with your high-level discussion and interpretation. And as Pete said, really gives us food for thought about these complicated problems moving forward and how to best counsel our patients. And that's really about all the time we have today. So for all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.